Hello, it's Max Lamana here. Thanks for joining us. We're going through unprecedented times in terms of the energy situation around the globe. And right now, there's more focus on the energy industry than ever before. It's the subject of a lot of discussion and debate. So National Grid have asked me to help shed a light on how it all works in this episode. Recent events have reminded us just how huge a part electricity plays in most of our lives. We switch on a light or plug in our computer, and there it is. But we don't often think about where that electricity actually comes from and how it gets from where it's made into our homes and businesses. What's more, if we want to make sure the energy we use isn't damaging our planet's future, we have to find some solutions to the new changes and challenges our systems face today. Whether that's climate change or global events or something else. And it turns out, electricity supply is not quite as simple as getting from A to B. There's actually a number of moving parts involved in getting this energy delivered to you in a way that's safe and efficient. So this episode is going to focus on electricity and especially clean electricity, getting from the producers to your plug socket. We'll also look at the part this process plays in the UK's household energy bills and find out where National Grid fits into this. And we'll meet with people that are making it happen We'll even get a glimpse inside a substation, and more importantly, find out what they're actually used for. Are you ready? This is the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. We're going to be visiting some cool places today on our journey around the grid networks. But first, there are distinct parts of this process defined by the industry. Let's get a little overview of how it all works thanks to the guests you'll be hearing from today. There are several players that make up the electricity supply chain. We've got the generators at the beginning. On most wind turbines, we have nothing more than bound copper wire. The blades then power magnets that revolve around the copper wire. That creates a positive negative charge. We make electricity on site. And then we've got the, the networks in the middle, which is a distribution and a transmission. We've got the National Control Centre. Essentially, without this room, the power wouldn't get to where it needs to be. The system wouldn't remain in tolerance and imbalance, so essentially the grid could not operate. Distribution forms part of that process between the larger substations, which may have voltages of 400,000 volts, down to the meter in people's houses. And then at the end, we've got the suppliers. On a typical uh, domestic bill, you're going to see a few things. You're going to see your consumption, so how much energy you've used for your electricity and gas, and what the cost is per unit uh, of those things. Whew! So there you have it. In a nutshell, that's how energy gets from the wind in the sea to your cup of tea. But don't worry if that was way too fast. We're going to walk through some of these steps in more detail now. The first of those steps is generation where electricity is actually created. At the moment, we have a mix of renewable generation, like wind and solar power, as well as non-renewable generation, such as fossil fuels. To understand how this works in practice, let's get out on the road and explore some renewable generation in action. Hello, I'm Graham Seaman. Right now, the UK's biggest push for clean energy comes from what you're hearing right now. That's clean green wind, courtesy of Mother Nature. Now we've plenty of it up and down our coastlines and across our landscapes. But how do we actually harness the power of wind to generate electricity in the first place? 
I'm currently standing under one of the UK's largest land-based windmills, not far from Junction 11 of the M4 motorway. This single wind turbine generates 4.5 million units of green energy every year. That's enough to power 1,500 local homes and businesses. Ian Goff runs Reduce Energy Limited and is here with me right now. Good to meet you, Ian. Good to meet you too. So just tell us a little bit about you then and what you do. My organisation, Reduce Energy Limited, we fulfil the space of educational tours on the Green Park site um, in order to disseminate a little bit of information about wind turbines, what they are, how they work and how good and useful they are. Now we hear a lot about renewable and non-renewable energy generation but what is the difference? So quite simply, one will continue to generate for years, so that's wind and sun, we will never run out of the wind and the sun. And the other non-renewables, coal, oil and gas, very polluting, harmful to our environment, everybody um, pretty much understands global climate change now, and eventually they will run out. Today we're talking about generating green renewable energy and electricity of course, but tell me where we're standing right now here at Green Park because I've got this... uh massive structure next to me. We stood right at the outside steps of the turbine. There's a couple of guys working right at the very top today. Now we can't go in there for health and safety reasons of course because you know it is a bit tricky in there isn't it? Yeah you've got to know what you're doing. So let's just walk up these steps here then. Right we're at the base of this massive structure. It is really impressive when you drive along the M4 and you see this thing. It looks huge. So size-wise how would you compare it? So believe it or not, um, nowadays this is actually considered a medium-sized wind turbine. Um, there's a project going on in China at the moment called the Miangying Project. Um, that's the delivery of a wind turbine that is 261 metres in height, so double plus this wind turbine. What's actually inside and how's it constructed? I describe it as giant steel toilet rolls sat one on top of the other, um, all connected together obviously. It's a very significant piece of kit, very bulky, close to 300 tonnes in weight. You won't find much uh, through this door here, nothing more than a load of computers. That's what programs the turbine, how to work effectively, um, how to face into the wind. It monitors the wind speed every half a second. And then just above those computer towers is that lift. Once you go all the way to the top, to the hub, the nacelle for the engineers out there, um, that's what contains all of the major component parts and where all the, the proper physical ad- activity starts. Let's just turn around the other way, away from this, and look at Green Park itself. It's obviously an industrial area. Area. Keeping this area green, you say 1,500 homes and businesses, I mean it must be important to be able to sort of put that back into the community. Yeah, I think that's why Green Park wanted to be seen to be green in every respect of the word. You know, they gave the, the land to Ecotricity. Um, Ecotricity built the wind turbine. And obviously, you know, the anticipation is for any energy generated to go straight back into the local grid. Um, it pretty much gives live data to the, the crews up in Gloucester. And if there are any problems with the turbine, it's effectively told to stop itself. The crews will turn up like they have today, rectify the fault, and it's all done quite quickly. Interestingly enough, I've noticed that the tips of the blades on this wind turbine have got sort of they're tipped up a bit, a bit like you see on the wings of an aircraft. Exactly, yeah. One of three reasons for that, as the wind pushes off the end of those blades, it causes a massive vortex. Now, those vortex, if it were a straight blade, they'd be enough to probably damage the local trees, maybe snapping them in half in peak wind conditions. So we, we hook, lip, tip the end of the turbine blades, and that then stops the vortex from forming. So the mechanism for the wind turbine, it converts obviously the wind into power and into electricity. So how does it do that? 
effectively we have nothing more than bound copper wire on one plate it doesn't move inside the hub the nacelle area at the top and blades then power magnets that revolve around the copper wire that creates a positive negative charge we make electricity on site can it withstand pretty strong winds yeah so programmable wind speed up to 31 meters per second that's a 67 mile per hour constant so anything over above and beyond that and then we're in the realms of you know we have to be a little bit careful because of the nature of wind is peaks and troughs so anything over above and beyond 31 metres per second, 67 miles per hour, effectively the turbine will shut itself down. Now I understand that there are different kinds of turbines around the country for different uses. So is that quite a standardised thing? The three-bladed turbine like the one at Green Park in Reading is generally accepted now a norm as a bit of a norm, but we see five-bladed, two-bladed, the Vernier-type turbines of France. Vertical stack systems have caught on a lot. Um, but to be honest with you, you do need big wind for the UK. Now, we know that the UK has pretty big plans for getting wind power onshore by 2030. And, of course, in the United States, they have a different target for their renewable integration. I mean, ultimately, uh, Ian, who foots the bill for building infrastructure like this? Is it the taxpayer, the government? How, how does that work? Well, in this example, it was Ecotricity. So Ecotricity used a, a, an ethical banking organisation. I can't mention their name. They stumped up the cash. Um, Ecotricity built the thing. Uh, it's up and operational and very rapidly, as I say, very rapidly, this one paid back, you know. So I think the methodology is more in the UK for private organisations to put in this type of infrastructure and own and operate. Maybe differently in different countries around the world. Wow, amazing stuff there. It's great to understand the technology that's helping us make the most of renewable energy. And from a single wind turbine to the enormous farms we're seeing in our seas, there's enough power being generated already to power millions of homes. Now we found out more about how electricity, whether it's green or not, gets generated for us to use. The next step is to understand how it gets moved from one place to another. Plus, we're not talking about sending electricity straight into our homes. This stuff is at a really high voltage, and there's a whole process to go through to get it to the right places and make sure it's served at the right times too. The first stage in that is transmission. And joining me to demystify this process is Senamiso Mathabella, one of National Grid's award-winning engineers and delivery manager for the control center in Warwick here in the UK. Senna, it's great to meet you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Senna, what's your role at National Grid and what does your job involve day to day? So for the past 10 years, I have worked in the power system control, fault response and system balancing and stuff. But my role at National Grid currently is Rio 2 policy development manager. So that means I look after our regulatory policies for the Rio T2 price control period. We need to deliver on the outputs that we, we said we're going to deliver. And also we need to show that we've been innovative in the way that we've been delivering. You were one of the Royal Engineering Society's top 50 women in engineering in 2020. Congratulations, by the way. You were also the first ever female control engineer in the Transmission National Control Center. Wow. <laughs> but what inspired your journey to work in this field? So I wanted to be an engineer from the time I was at school, actually, because I had a good role model 
my friend's father was an, an engineer. He worked at a power station local to where I live. And so, you know, he used to talk about his job. And, and I thought it was amazing that he, you know, he had this, this cool job that brings electricity to the people because he would get called out on, on standby to kind of fix things at the power station. And I used to think it was almost like he was Superman going to fix the electricity so we can get the power back. So I asked the questions and, and followed that path really into an electrical engineering degree and ended up working with him at a power station, which was my first job. And then from there, I moved into system control because I thought that was more interesting. So that is, uh, that's been my journey into electricity. When I started, there, there weren't any women in the control center that I worked in in Zimbabwe and even in the UK, which was a surprise to me. So recently we have seen a big uptake on women coming into the uh, engineering field to start with and also in the control room. So by the time I left the control room, we had three other women working in the control room. So that, that was really great. I mean, small numbers still, but it, it is getting better. And I'm, I'm just hoping that it will continue to, you know, to get better, that women will get more and more interested in engineering and particularly the control room and control system operations. Wow. Thank you, Senna. So let's get back into talking about electricity. Now, why is transmission the first part of this process? Yeah, as you say, the electricity process has several stages to it. So we've got generation at the beginning, then we've got transmission in the middle, and then we've got distribution, with which then takes the power to the homes and businesses. Power is generated at the power stations, and then we need to transmit over long distances from the generation stations. So the power is uh, stepped up from the generators into high voltages, which is in England and Wales, we, we use 4275 kV uh, voltages. And I know in other countries they use different. So NGET, which is the National Grid Electricity Transmission on the transmission network in England and Wales. And in, in Scotland, it's, there's two Scottish TOs, which is um, Scottish Hydro and, and Scottish Power. So transmission really is required because we need to transport at high voltages to reduce transmission losses. It's very much like if you think about the road networks and you've got the, the motorways, which would be our, our transmission, you know, where you need to travel at high speed and, and it's, it's a long distance. And then you, from the transmission network, you then get into the distribution network, who, who then transmit the electricity at uh, lower voltages using shorter lines, which then go to the homes. So I always think the analogy of the motorway is a good one because you wouldn't want to drive straight from your driveway into the motorway. You, you'd have to you know, get into the Bay Road to make it safer, but then you need the motorway to travel faster. Senna, are there different technologies for transmitting energy around the grid? The transmission network is the, you know, the steel towers that you see within transmission network. We do have cables as well, so we use cables for shorter distances. What are the pros and cons of some of these? So pros and cons, the overhead lines on the flattest towers, they are, they are the cheapest way to transmit electricity across long distances. You don't need to provide cooling as they are air-cooled and faults are relatively easier to detect and rectify on overhead lines. Overhead lines are susceptible to the weather because they are out there you know, in the open, you know, when there's lightning and rain. The good thing about it is it's easier to find the faults and it's easier to rectify. Cables are installed underground, so you, you don't see them. Now, the problem with the cables is it's very costly to install cables because you, you need to dig. And then the cables themselves, they need to be cooled and they tend to be really big. We always look to find the most economic and efficient way to get the power in to drive the net zero ambition. How much of our bills does transmission actually count for? In the UK, in the last year, 
2020 to 2021, our direct contribution to the consumer bill was about 20 pounds on an average household bill. So, Senna, we've been mainly talking about transmission in the UK, but does electricity generally take the same kind of journey in different parts of the world? For example, National Grid also operate the electricity transmission system in the northeast U.S. Does it work the same there, too? The journey of electricity from generation, transmission and distribution is going to be the same wherever you are. But they do use different voltages and different, and they operate at a different frequency. Our role as National Grid in the U.S., we own the distribution network in New York and Massachusetts. And then we have a transmission network in New York, Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Vermont. It's really inspiring to meet engineers like Senna who are so passionate about their work and putting their talents forward to serve us all in our energy systems. We've been invited for a tour behind the scenes at one of the most important infrastructure hubs in the UK. Every day, the ESO, or Electricity System Operator, moves over 730 gigawatt hours of high-voltage electricity around the country. Whew, that's enough to power... 146 billion light bulbs. Hi, so my name is James Kellaway. I'm a senior manager in the corporate affairs team at National Grid ESO, the sort of central hub, the beating heart, if you like, of the electricity system. It's where we keep everything balanced, everything running for GB. It's actually probably one of the most secure square miles in Berkshire. We've got the National Control Centre, and we're going to go up and have a look at that in just a moment. Surrounding that are what look like regular offices, and all the people in those offices perform vital functions to feed that control room with all the information it needs to keep going 24-7. So as, as you're walking through reception, uh, one of the things you see here is a, is a huge live graph on the wall. It tells us how polluting the, the power system in GB is right now. So it's showing at the point where we're recording, obviously, that we're about 258 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. That's the amount of carbon that goes into our atmosphere for every kilowatt hour of energy that's produced. That's less than half it was just a a decade ago. And this just really gives a a high level overview of what's making power in the country right now. Okay, so let's walk on through. Right in the middle, we've got a huge atrium. This is kind of like the central hub of the office, if you like. And if we want to have a chat with these guys, they're actually getting ready for Diwali. Hi, my name is Sanjay. I work for the ESO as a resilience analyst. We look at the resilience for the control room and to make ensure that they are able to continue doing what they do. If they are unable to operate from one control centre, we can organise evacs to another control centre where we can get them ready and set up. I'm Charlie. I'm a power system engineer working in the technical operations policy team. We support the control room on a number of things, looking at post-event reporting, grid code reporting, any kind of technical queries that come from around the business. I think it's just really great to work in a place where you know you're really contributing. So walking on through, as we go on through this way, this is actually quite a cool office. I mean, it just looks like a regular office, right? But the team's here. So if you imagine over here, this is the equivalent of our trading floor. Back over in that corner there, they will uh, actually do the trades necessary during the day to ensure that we buy on that additional bit of power that the market hasn't quite delivered or you know or they sell off some stuff that we don't need as we look down through here these teams here actually predict what that human behavior what that demand is going to be the following day the days ahead and the closer they can get to it the more accurate we can get demand is basically the the amount of power that's needed in the country okay what these guys down the end here do is they actually predict that they figure that stuff out using some really quite advanced maths techniques and they're really good at it too 
the important thing is, is the closer that they can get to actually what happens, the cheaper it is for the consumer, and also the more carbon efficient it can be. Okay, so we've uh, you just come into uh, the building that houses the main national control centre. Okay, and we're going now to the viewing gallery. Welcome to the NCC. As we're looking through the glass here, this is actually the, uh, the main control room. This is where we run the country from. So as we look into the main control centre, it does look a bit like a James Bond lair from the, from the noughties, if you like. What we're looking at here is we've got a big video wall, which is about twice the size of the facade of a typical house. We have the UK essentially turned on its side. And these are all the main circuits that we run. It looks like a really big circuit diagram, okay? And it's got all different colours, and all the colours mean different things. So, like turquoise colour is one particular voltage, uh, a purpley colour is another voltage, a red colour is another voltage. A yellow colour means that that area is actually out being serviced, or it's, uh, or it's out of commission at the moment. The lines are literally just the electrical distances between different components of the grid. If you've ever seen one of these really big substations when you drive past it, each of the little blobs on here is one of those huge substations. So if you think of it like we're running the motorway network for the UK from this room, what you can see on the screen here is that motorway network alive and running. The ladies and gentlemen in this room are you know, some of the best power engineers out there. What we do here essentially is residual balancing. So it's figuring out what that gap is at any given point, second by second, and keeping the system in very fine tolerance so that when you turn on your TV, turn on your light, actually it just works. What people use electricity for changes minute by minute, right? So I might put my dishwasher on at a different time than someone else uses their washing machine at a different time than someone else charges their EV. And we've got 60 plus million people doing that. Yeah, and so we have to think about those sort of patterns. That's one side, that's kind of like the load side of the equation. The other side is what makes that power. One of these people in here will say, will phone up a power plant or press a button and say, please can you make some electricity? They will control a fireball, steam will happen, out will pop approximately the number of megawatts you ask for. Yeah, and National Grid has done that for many, many years. Where it's becoming really interesting now is working with renewables because actually, although we can control renewables to a certain extent, they're very much weather dependent. So we've also now got the renewable plant coming in and out, which is a lot more volatile. And what this room does is it, it makes that puzzle all work. Essentially, without this room, the power wouldn't get to where it needs to be. The system wouldn't remain in tolerance and imbalance, so essentially the grid could not operate. So the, uh, the infrastructure is changing all the time. So it's like an, a living, evolving animal. It always has been and it always will be. Irrespective of where the power is being made, it always ends up where it needs to be. That's what this room does. We have one of the most reliable grids in the world, so we're at 99.999% reliability all the time. Thanks guys, what a brilliant team. I can't believe that all the little things we do and how we live our lives day to day has to be anticipated and prepared for. And what's more incredible is how the ESO do that successfully 24-7. The next and final stage in the process is getting all that high voltage power into our homes at the right voltage. You've probably seen a substation out and about. Those complicated looking frameworks of cables and metal boxes can look very mysterious. But now we're going to find out what happens inside them. Thanks to Stephen Blackwell, the local distribution manager in Bristol. Hi, my name's Steve Blackwell. I'm the distribution manager in the Bristol area working for National Grid. Today we are at one of our distribution substations in the St. Philip's area of Bristol. Distribution forms part of that process between the larger substations, which may have voltages of 400,000 volts, 
down to the metre in people's houses. Substations are generally a three metre by two metre plot. Imagine a garage, a single garage, and are generally located in inconspicuous positions. Many people would walk past a substation and not even realise they've passed one. A very rule of thumb would be a substation would feed an area with a radius of, say, half a kilometre. A ground-mounted substation such as this that we're at, those 400-amp fuses would feed a set of conductors which would either rise up a, a wooden pole and, you know, everybody can see the overhead network running down streets and then smaller wires from that going into people's homes. Or there are cables within the, the footpath or underneath the footpath that nobody sees Everything's underground, it's hidden out of the way and and into homes that way. Okay, let's go and take a closer look at our substation. So this is a typical distribution substation. Within it is contained a a transformer. That's where it takes the voltage from 11,000 volts and steps down to the the low voltages of 230 volts, 415. Uh, Next to it is a ring main unit. The ring main unit is basically two switches which allows us to work on the network without disturbing customer supplies and switch the network around and next to that we've got the low voltage fuse board LV cabinet is is the name we use in, in the game and that's where each of the cables which feed out to the streets and run under the pavements or along overhead lines this is where those those conductors are fused large fuses here not like a 13 amp fuse in your plugs in the house so these are 400 amp fuses and and that's this bit of kit here each substation gets inspected at least once a year some quarterly but generally in this case a distribution stub in this location would be once a year you'd have to wear um, flame retardant overalls glasses boots just to enter the substation in a storm Depending on the type of fault that we're experiencing, the substation could be visited. That could be to isolate fuses and isolate supplies to allow us to work on a particular fault. But generally, a substation such as this, we would be here to alternatively feed the network by opening and closing some of these switches. I feel immensely proud working in this industry. I know a lot of our staff feel very proud in the roles they do but particularly we're we're most recognized in a storm situation when lots of people are battening down the hatches we're climbing poles we're fixing faults in dirty muddy holes within that bill that a customer pays each year 100 pounds of that bill goes towards the distribution company that that's ourselves so that that contribution from each person goes towards the maintenance the extension the repair the general upkeep of the network steve thanks for sorting that out substations are no longer a mystery Next time you see one on your travels, you can explain to your friends and family exactly what's happening there. So far in this episode, we've generated the energy and transmitted it to the right places. It's been balanced and sent to the areas where electricity demand is changing every hour of the day, every day of the week, and then found out how it gets to our homes at a safe voltage. But of course, 
that's not really the end of it. In fact, the biggest part of it for you and me starts right now, billing. There can be confusion about what we're actually paying for when that letter lands on our doormat and the energy suppliers take a lot of heated questions when it comes to how much we're paying for gas and electricity. That's why I wanted to speak to one of them to sort the facts from fiction. Hello, I'm Paul Sands and I'm the Chief Growth Officer at Ecotricity. It's great to meet you. Can you share the ethos behind Ecotricity and what kind of people are choosing this company? Sure, that's a great question. So the ethos behind Ecotricity, well, we are Britain's greenest energy company. We exist to end fossil fuels. That's our mission statement. We use our customers' bill money to build more windmills and more sun parks and really try and directly tackle climate change. So the people who are with us tend to be people who care about that mission. So that that tends to be uh, ethical people who want their businesses to stand for something and they want to be part of our deep green cause. Can you break down a bill for me? What's in it? What are we paying for? And how does it add up to that monthly number? So on a typical uh, domestic bill, you're going to see a few things. You're going to see your consumption. Uh, So how much energy you've used for your electricity and and your gas, of course, and what the cost is per unit uh, of those things. Uh, You're going to see some other things like your standing charge. And for that, it's going to be a cost per day uh, for that bill. And then you're probably going to see a few other lines for things like rebates, um, for example, if if your supplier gives you a discount for having two fuels with them or, you know, you might get a discount for having a direct debit or something like that. And then you're going to see your, your VAT, what goes to the tax man. Standing charge, What what is that? Can you t- tell me a little bit more about the standing charge? The standing charge exists to cover the, the costs that are always there. And that's things like the cost of maintaining the national grid and the distribution network that gets gas and electricity to your house in the first place. Um, And also it's for other things like government levies and so on. Okay, I've always wondered about this. Why do different energy companies offer different prices? Yeah, I mean, that's probably not too different to, you know, the the reason a loaf of bread might cost different in, in different supermarkets, really. So in there, you've got factors like how competitive uh, that energy supplier wants to be, whether it's all about getting new customers and expanding its market share at the moment, what their cost base has been. Have they managed to buy energy sensibly in advance at a cheap rate and then they can pass on some of those savings to their customers? That would be part of the reason. And then, you know, quality as well, a bit like that. You might pay more for a better loaf of bread. Um, In a way, you pay a little bit more sometimes for better energy. And that might be, you know, in our case, for example, we're not the cheapest, but we're the greenest. And the customers pay a little bit more for knowing that we're going to use that money to help build a windmill. At the moment, there isn't much differentiation. And that's because the government energy price guarantee has kind of got lots of suppliers pricing at the same kind of level. And there's there's regulation and also just the market volatility right now. You know, a lot of suppliers are not keen to take on a a lot of extra demand right now just because the energy markets are so unpredictable. Um, So people aren't being particularly aggressive uh, to get lots of new customers at the moment. What can energy companies do? to help us be greener and all work towards net zero? The most important thing energy companies can can do is to provide you with the greenest energy possible in the first place. But then beyond that, you know, energy companies have, have got a duty to help educate and inform people. Why is renewable electricity costing more during a gas crisis? And why are prices going up on renewable energy programs? 
Yeah, that's a common and I think a very fair uh, question because you, you would kind of think that energy from a windmill would not be impacted by Russian gas, for example, wouldn't you? But there's a system called marginal pricing, which basically means when you go to the energy wholesale market, the cost that you pay for that is determined by the most expensive piece of generation that was needed to meet that demand. If there's a lot of demand and a gas-fired power station needs to kick in, for example, to meet that, even the cost of the energy that came from those windmills is set at that level as well. That's under review. Bayes and the government are looking at that right now. And in the future, we may see a system where the cost of renewables is isolated and differentiated from the cost of fossil fuels and so on. But right now, it is all part of a blended rate um, which does mean that, unfortunately, green energy has got more expensive for supplies to buy alongside, you know, fossil fuels. This month, households in England, Wales and Scotland will receive a one-off £400 grant for their energy bills. How will people see that reflected in their bills? Yeah, so just to clarify, it won't all come in one go. Uh, so don't panic if you don't see £400 coming off your bill. Um, but that £400 is going to be spread across the six months of winter. And this is just one of the government schemes. This is the one that was originally set up by Rishi Sunak last spring. But what you are going to see on your bill depends on how you pay your bill. So if you have a prepayment meter, for example, you should be receiving that through vouchers that are sent to you. If you've got a credit meter and you pay by direct debit, it might be a refund that comes back to you or it might come off your bill in the first place, really. Is there a way for people to save money on their bills right now and make renewable choices? Well, that's a really important question at the moment, isn't it? And it's going to be front of mind for a lot of people because the cost of living crisis is biting. It hurts, doesn't it? And of course, the energy use is a significant part of expenditure for so many of us. Like I said, though, at the moment, there aren't a lot of super cheap deals out there in the market. There isn't much price differentiation going on because of the, the market conditions that we spoke about before. So I don't really think uh, for someone who's looking to save money, the answer probably isn't in shopping around at the moment. Um, if you're on a fixed deal with your current supplier, when that expires, go on to their standard variable tariff. Uh, you, whatever tariff you're on, you'll be getting the benefits of the government energy price guarantee through until next March, at least. And we'll see what happens after that. And if you really are struggling to pay, of course, make sure you do talk to your supplier about um, any options they, they have for you. Beyond that, to be honest, rather than shopping around, I think the most important thing to do is for all of us to look at the amount of energy we're consuming. Are there things we can do around the house just to save a little bit of energy here and there, whether that's on the way you cook or, you know, making sure that you've got uh, doors insulated and, you know, you're blocking drafts. It's been really eye-opening to get into the nitty-gritty of how our electricity systems work and how that all translates into our monthly bills and budgets. It sounds like there's a lot of people looking at what can be done to make sure we can have a clean energy future that's actually affordable. If you're in the UK, like me, you can check the Offgem website for details on help with energy bills, as well as government programs and support. And if you're in the US, you can contact LIHEAP, a federally funded program that helps keep families safe and healthy through assistance with energy costs. It's really interesting to know that energy market pricing in the UK has been set against the pricing for gas and fossil fuels. It'll be interesting to see if that changes in the next few years, 
when all that offshore wind is making a difference to the energy we're actually using. And when you look at the United States, the challenges are greater in terms of getting renewables on the grid across an even bigger geography. If you'd like to find out more about how clean and green energy is part of your own world right now, you can follow National Grid on social media or visit nationalgrid.com. Next month, as we head into winter, I'll be finding out about all the ways in which we're making our energy supply fit for the future, from climate change to increased demand or global events. We'll find out how energy supplies are being made more secure and how clean energy fits into all these plans. Make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast and don't miss it. I'll see you then.